I'm a lot of things, but one of the things that I am kind of crazed about is uh, history. I love history. Uh, I love all kinds of history. I'm kind of addicted right now to our revolutionary history. Um, I've been reading books uh, about John Adams. I've read books about the revolution, George Washington, 1776 by Dave McCullough. Oh, what a great book. I'm just kind of addicted to this area. I also love the Civil War period and what a mess that was. And I know I mentioned a bunch of stuff to you about Lincoln a while ago. But I'm, I'm kind of addicted. And one of my favorite books about the revolution um, is a guy by the name of Joseph Ellis. And he wrote a book called Founding Brothers. And this book is, I think, one of the greatest books on the revolution. It is a little book, but it is dense. It will take you a long time to work through. His heart, he's, he's a dense writer. And as you think of the revolution, you know, we live so far away from it now, 220, 30 years, 231 years, is that right? 231 years away, is that right? Is that really right? Dang, I remember the bicentennial like it was, wow, that was 31 years ago. Holy smokes, somebody in here is getting old. The, uh, all right, so, um, but it, we kind of live on this side of it. We kind of just assume that this thing kind of worked out. If you're at all a student of the Revolutionary War, it was a mess. And at any point in time, had the English done a few things right, it would we would have lost. It would have been, I mean, we would not be an independent, we'd be speaking the, the King's English or Queen's English right now, you know, it, instead of good old Iron Range like we're supposed to. God, the way God intended, the, way, the language of heaven, eh? <clears throat> so... Uh, it is. It is not. It was not a clear thing that we were going to win. And I think if you read some of the revolutionary stuff and you realize it that way, it's great. He's got some great stuff in here. I want to list a couple of them about this revolution. He says no event in American history was so improbable at the time, has seemed so inevitable in retrospect. In other words, it just on this side of it, we seem like yeah, sure, but on that side, it was like there's no way this is going to happen. The odds were so against it. As the American Revolution, on the inevitable side, it is true there were voices back then urging prospective patriots to regard American independence as an early version of manifest destiny. It was just going to happen. For example, uh, Thomas Paine claimed that it was simply a matter of common sense that an island could not rule a continent. It can't do that. And Thomas Jefferson's lyrical uh, rendering of the reasons for the entire revolutionary enterprise emphasized the self-evident character of the principles at stake. You see, this guy's kind of dense, but basically saying, uh, in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these things to be self-evident. Uh, those of you who are postmodernists, really hardcore, aren't going to like this, but hang on. He said, uh, Jefferson said, these things are foundational. They just, they're just givens. I don't have to prove them, they're givens. What are they? To Jefferson? Whoa, you all went to public school. What are they? Thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And liberty is one of them. And he says, we need our liberty, it's a given. We will not be under tyranny. We will have liberties. They're self-evidential truths. Ellis goes on to say, the creation of a separate American nation occurred suddenly rather than gradually, in revolutionary rather than evolutionary fashion. The decisive events that shaped the political ideas and institutions of the emerging state all taking place with dynamic intensity during the last quarter of the 18th century. No one present at the start knew how it would turn out in the end. What in retrospect has the look of a foreordained unfolding of God's will was in reality an improvisational, there's a lot of improvisation going on, Uh, improvisational affair in which sheer chance, pure luck, both good and bad, and specific decisions made in the crucible of specific military and political crisis determined the outcome. Now, now, 
Let me interpret him for you here. He, he's saying that it looks like this whole thing just was, it was like, you know, you're reading it, it's just simple, going to happen. Like he, what he calls the foreordained will of God. But in actuality, it's all this happenstance stuff that's all over the place, what I would call the foreordained will of God. But, you know, we disagree on that little point. <laughs> but, it's, but it's all, it's not like this simple thing that happened. We get these pictures of these, you know, Abigail and, and um, John Adams. Go ahead there. Flip through these real quick there. Yep, we get pictures of them. We get pictures of Jefferson and pictures of Washington, some of the, the founding people of our nation, uh, amazing people of our nation. And we get this idea that it was all just kind of simple and it wasn't messy. It was messy, but it was a revolution. It was a revolution that changed seriously changed the world. But it came with a cost, a huge cost. Benjamin Rush, who was a medical doctor, and he was one of the people that signed the Declaration of Independence, he recorded something that is in this book by Joseph Ellis. He recorded something early on in the discussion as they were forming the Declaration of Independence. It's by two men who also were signers of the Declaration of Independence, Mr. Jerry and Mr. Harrison. And Mr. Harrison is speaking to Mr. Jerry, and here's what he says. He says, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, said Harrison, when we are all hung for what we are now doing from the, from the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes. <laughs> but from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead. Rush recalled that the comment procured a transient smile, but it was soon succeeded by the solemnity with which the whole business was conducted. <laughs> These guys were declaring treason on England. They were wanted people. They were going to hang for this. Every one of them. When you signed your name on that document, that was your death warrant. This was risky, risky business. Now, this week, this week in our study of the Gospel of John, we get the opportunity to see what happened as they started a revolution. There's the start of a revolution. My challenge to us is, and I'll just give you the end now, so if you're going to go to the you know, La La Land, I'll well do it right now because I'm going to tell you, are you willing to start a revolution? Are you willing to be someone who's willing to start a revolution? I even found a picture of Jesus that makes him look like some kind of infidel from, from some kind of radical 60s guy. Like, looks like Castro kind of, doesn't he? But there he is, Jesus the revolutionary. If you're new to us, we're only 75 messages into the Gospel of John. So you could just download them off the internet, you're good to go. No, you're fine. You're doing fine. If you're brand new to us, we only have, I think, what, five left to go, four left to go. It's getting right towards the end here. We are in the Gospel of John. If you want to open up your Bible to John chapter 20, we are looking at this week um, at Jesus showing himself off to uh, another group of people after he was raised again. Let me just give you the context of where we're at. If you remember, uh, the first part of chapter 20 talks about uh, Jesus being raised again. I'm not going to read all this, but uh, Mary goes down on the first day of the week she finds the tomb empty. The stone is moved from the entrance. She goes back and tells Peter and John. They run there. Uh, John gets there first, but Peter enters in. He sees the empty tomb. He sees the grave clothes lying there. So somehow Jesus was raised up through his 
clothes. The cloth was folded up by itself, uh, separate from the linen. And they come and they believe. They're not even sure what happened. So just to refine where we're at. Again, if you're brand new this week, we're really glad you're here. Just let me refine where it is. We've come to the end of the Gospel of John, the highlight of what Jesus came on the earth to do. Not just teach, that's important, but he came to die. He came to die to be the substitute for our sins. To be that one, that hallelujah, what a savior. Guilt, uh, guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. That's what happened when Jesus Christ died. And he died for your, your my sin. But not only that, that's not the end of the story. On Sunday, Easter, the first Easter morning, he's raised again. He's raised again to scream that Good Friday worked. He's raised again to, to be power for us. We'll talk about that in the future here. But he's also raised to, uh, to show off to the world that he is the one. He is the one. And that's what he's doing right now. He's shown off. We watched, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, and this one's kind of Victorian. I think I still like this one. Uh, this Victorian Mary, Mary Magdalene. He shows off first to Mary Magdalene, and it still blows my mind. That Mary Magdalene gets to be the first one. one. Seven demons came out of this woman. And she was a woman, and that culture was very patriarchal. Jesus comes and just blows everybody's perceptions. She is the first one who gets to see the risen Christ. That's crazy. But God loves doing that kind of stuff. Now, this week we're going to see Jesus. And he's going to show himself off this time to what I'm calling ten revolutionaries. Remember, there's eleven disciples... Gospel of John shows something that the other Gospels don't show, that one of the guys was missing in this meeting. We'll meet him next week, Thomas. He's called Doubting Thomas. We need to give him a little bit of a break. Uh, he's not, not, he's a good guy. So if you need Tom, you're good. You're good. It's fine. But he's not in the room this time. There's ten guys, and Jesus is going to show himself off to these ten guys. So we're in John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 19. We're only doing four verses this week, so we're in good shape. I'm going to kind of... Take this uh, point by point. It's almost like half a verse at a time. We kind of fold what's happening. So here we go. First thing, John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, so stop right there. That means the same day, Easter Sunday, the first one. Morning he's raised, they come running. Later he appears to Mary. And it says here, on that day, first day of that week, this one, Sunday. And it says this. When the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... I know I haven't got to the verb yet, but just hang on with me here. Here's your revolutionaries. Here they are. Here are the dudes that are going to set the world on fire. And where are they? They're locked in a room. Now, why are they locked in the room? Because they're chicken. That's what it says. They're afraid of the Jews. Why would you be afraid of the Jews? Look what they did to Jesus just two days ago. Friday. Thursday they captured him. Friday they crucified him. Sunday, they're they're not exactly sure what's going on. Jesus ain't in the tomb. This is weird. But I don't want to be the next guy. There's a furor happening. There's still this this feeling of an event that took place. Just like 35W, when it crashed on Wednesday, the bridge, you felt something on Friday and Saturday. You've still felt that kind of feeling in the community. There's still a feeling in the community of of the death of Jesus. And these guys are cowering, these are great guys to get a revolution for, cowering in a locked room. Now there's another reason why John tells us it's a locked room, he'll show us in just a minute, but one of the things is, these guys 
we're afraid. And it's clear that he's saying that because he says why. He could have just said it's in a locked room, Jesus is going to appear, and the room was locked, and it's like, how'd you do that? That was awesome. That's going to happen in just a second. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, for fear of the Jews. This gives me great hope. I told you already where I'm going at the end. I want us to be revolutionaries. If you're scared of doing that, you're in great company. You're there with Peter and John and Thomas. Oh, Thomas in there. Uh, Judas and the other Judas. The other Judas, not so good. But there's another Judas and other ones. They're there. These are the guys who have been with Jesus for three years. These are the guys that watched him feed 5,000. These guys watched him walk on water. These are the guys that watched him heal a guy by a pool. And where are they? They're in, the, they're in the room cowering. If you're scared of being a revolutionary, you are in good company. Let's keep going. All of a sudden, the second part of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, the room is locked. They make the point of that. It, you have to assume here that resurrected people who have left their grave clothes are not given the key. Okay, that's just an assumption. I think it's a fair assumption. These things, when they say they were locked, sometimes they were like the old, you know, you put a piece of wood in there to bar yourself from your enemies. That's the kind of locked it was. Not like when we think of a little quick set lock or what. I mean, this is, this is locked. Keep out those people who might come and try to take us out. And Jesus just appears. He just appears. Now, he doesn't do that in his earthly ministry, right? He doesn't just, whoo, need to go to Galilee, whoo, need to go to Jerusalem, whoo. He doesn't do that. He walks. Now, could he have? I, I, I don't know. But in his risen body, he can. He says, he comes over there, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Now, which is a kind of a common greeting. If you're from the Iron Range, it's, we'd, we'd have come in and appeared and said, how's it going, eh? Nobody's from, nobody's from the Iron Range. Nobody gets that. Okay. Okay, so it's, it's the common greeting. But it's also, if a dude just appears when you're in a room, I'm glad he's saying, peace be with you. I'm glad this is the thing he's saying. You know, like just like yesterday, Calvin... I was doing something, and he just was hiding around the corner and went, boo! So I'm glad. Weren't you glad Jesus didn't come in, and the first thing he said was, boo! He <laughs> says, peace be with you. Then he proves himself. He proves who he is. He's, after this, second, uh, first part of verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands... Not only just his hands, but his side, which would have been a unique mark that the Christ would have been the only one. Now, I don't know if they were wondering at that period of time. Maybe this is one of the other two guys who were crucified two days ago. I'm not sure. But to make it real clear, Jesus' side was there too. Let me just encourage you with something here. Just stop for a second. If you're, if you're here and you, quite honestly, you're not even sure. Why in the world am I here? I'm not even sure how I got here this morning. I'm not sure I believe any of this. I need some evidence, some proof that this makes sense. That's okay. That's okay. Take your time to do that. If, if it doesn't make sense, I'd like you to tell me too. I mean, we don't want to believe things that are foolish. Jesus comes to them and says, I know it's going to be a little hard to believe, A, that I'm resurrected, and B, that I can just appear, but let me show you something that I'm him. And he lets them see, we're going to allow, see next week, that Thomas actually gets to touch his hands and his side. So he proves himself. He shows him the money. He says, you, I am the risen Christ.
Christ. They change at that moment. Everything, 180 degrees is, is, the, is the shift. They go from fearful, cowering people to, verse 20, the second part, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I mean, it was pandemonium in there as they're rejoicing as they see Jesus again. This is awesome. This is great. They're, it's party time. They are just, it's complete shift when this happens. And here it comes. Here comes, some would argue, is one of the most important verses in the, in the Gospel of John. John 20, verse 21. Jesus says again, peace be with you. And here it comes. This is huge. This is huge. He says, as the Father has sent me. You can insert the word so there. Some of the versions say so. So, I'm sending you. That is mad. That's the call of the revolution right there. That's the revolution. As I was sent by the Father, so I'm sending you. Now, every gospel, every one of the other three gospels has some call to, the, to a revolution. John's is the most succinct. It is, is bingo. Here it is. It's in one simple little phrase. Let me just look at the other ones here quickly with you so you can see kind of the difference. It's just all these calls. And I'm sure Jesus said all these. But John highlights this particular phrase, and it's the only one he gives for the call to the revolution. Matthew, maybe you're very familiar with this, it's often called the Great Commission. They're all the Great Commission. But if you think of the, the phrase, the Great Commission that we're on as followers of Christ, they often look at the Gospel of Matthew. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love that verse. Don't, don't quote the Great Commission without that verse. Don't quote the Great Commission about the next verse. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's not about how large you can grow a church or how large you can grow your Bible study or how many people you can attract to different events. It's not about you. It's about Christ. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of me, not you, of me. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism being the thing that says, you are part of the family. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching is just the, the concept of taking the whole Bible and saying, how does this work with your life? Who is God? Who am I? How do I figure out where I'm going? Teaching them everything I've commanded them, commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. All that's very important. That's how Matthew gets the culture of the revolution. Luke says it this way. A very similar type of event. It might even be the same event. Just John just doesn't record these words. Where Jesus comes to, to them, appears to them. He said to them, uh, I'm kind of picking it a little bit at the end just to show you the, the part where he gives them this call to the revolution. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. That is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so he could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. They did not get it until then that this Christ had to die. It's the first time they get it. Oh, dang, that's how it works. They didn't get it. I'm serious. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You, here it is, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you 
what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So he says, you are going to be my witnesses. Mark, Mark chapter 16. Now, if you have your Bible and you flip it to Mark chapter 16, you'll notice that it's probably dubious that this is really in the original writings of Mark. It's possible that it was, but it's very, very doubtful. So as I quote this, it's possible that this was a later edition. So just so you know that. But he says it, Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had, see, who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. It's very important. The plan, the plan for the kingdom of God to spread was Jesus raising up these eleven guys and the other associates with them and sending them out. There is no plan B. That's it. Change the world. Here you go. Have fun storming the castle. I mean, here you go. <clears throat> now, this is radical. Look at that phrase again, John chapter 20. As Jesus said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's what he says. As I've been sent, so you, I'm sending you just like that. Now that, if you look just in the Gospel of John, that phrase, sent, like this same word, is used 27 different times. Not all of them refer to uh, uh, this concept, but many of them do. And I want to highlight just a couple of them with you, and so you can get a concept of how was Jesus sent, and how is that how we're supposed to be sent? most famous one is John 3.16 and the verses that follow. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he is not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So there's this concept that God sends his Son into a situation, a dangerous situation. Theologically, this is called the incarnation, where the, where, where the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, adds humanity and comes in and is with us. As the Father has sent me with a mission, with a plan, into dangerous territory, guess what? That's what I'm sending you. John chapter 6, Jesus says, um, then they asked him, what must we do the works that God requires? And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one, he doesn't just say to believe in me, to believe in the one who was sent. That's the way he describes it. The work of God is to believe in the one who was sent. He goes on later in that chapter to say, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Man, that's awesome stuff. Think about that for a second. He says, just as the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. There's that, there's that, that same thing again. The sending, Father sends the Son and that causes the Son to have life there's also a correlation. The ones who are feeding on Jesus, you'll be the one that has 
has life. John 17, it's filled with this imagery of the father uh, of the excuse, of the th- father sending the son, and then we being the ones that are sent from then. Now this is eternal life, verse three, that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And then if you skip down to verse 17, Jesus says, "Sanctify them." He's praying for his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. See that? It's interesting. There it is again. The whole thing is that the world believe that he sent him. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Three things about the incarnation. Three things about the incarnation. In other words, that the Father sent the Son and how that relates to us being sent. First one is, it is being sent out. You are going into a different place. I was talking with a buddy of mine who uh, is doing very, very unique ministry in San Francisco right now. He's just living among, in the hood, and is just there to live a different lifestyle. He's not even calling it a church. He doesn't know what to call it. I'd call it a church, but he doesn't want to call it a church, so that's fine, whatever. But it's this thing where he's just living among people. One of the things that he tells his kids, his kids are... uh, I think they're 14, 12, and and 10. He tells them, while they have family devotions, he says, you know what? We're not like other people. We're living an intentional life here to be different than other people. We're different here. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't just come to, oh, hang out with y'all. He was sent with a purpose. He was sent to be different and to be a call. That's the first thing that is totally applicable to us. We are to be incarnational. We are to be people who go out into dangerous places and yet don't just, uh, don't just chameleon out here. We're to be different. Second thing, though, and this is where it departs, is Jesus says that, when, that the whole point of being sent out is that they would believe in him. Now, that does not apply. That does not apply. When you're being sent out, you still got to go back to Jesus. It does, you're not the one that, yeah, look at me. Look at me. If you're a leader... I don't care if you're a Bible study leader. I don't care if there's pastors out here. I don't care if there's future pastors out here. I don't care if you're just leading a family. Would you get that right? Me too. Would I get that right? It is not about us. It's not about us. I meet with a lot of pastors, and that's rule number one. It ain't about you. And I can't tell you how many pastors get that wrong. I can't tell you how many times I struggle with that. It's not about me. Don't lose that. It's about Jesus. So part of being incarnational is, yes, you're connecting them, but I'm holding their hand so that I can, hang with me here for a minute, I can get the electricity from Jesus and it goes through me to them and eventually I can do that and then boom, then they're getting their own Jesus juice. Whatever. You make the analogy work. But I'm not doing this. Aren't I cool? You're with me. I'm the coolest thing. I'm 43. I'm done being cool. Many of you knew me. I never was cool. Don't be cool. Be connected. Third thing you see there, 
is that we are, are the only representation. We are it. You might be saying, why doesn't God do something? He does. I'm looking at 300 plus of them right now. He does do something. We're it. That is thrilling. That scares the bejesus out of me. Right? Same time, I'm it. You're it. Tag. You're it. Ah, we got... Nah, it's hot. I won't do it. We'll save that another day. Um, last thing here. Let's do one last thing. Last part of this thing. Where does the power... And what is their message? It's in the last two verses here. And with that, he breathed on them. Or some verses just say breathed. Some versions just say, and with that he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now this is, very, this is paralleled in other, in other uh, passages. Um, and I'm just going to go over this real briefly. The, the thing here, breathing on them, the words on them are added, so it's, and then he breathed. It could just mean he took a breath. It could mean that whew, he breathed on them. I mean, it could be. We're not, putting the word on them makes it sound, for sure it's like the second, we're not exactly sure. We don't know which one it is. What it was, is this was John's only way of talking about what's going to happen at Pentecost. John doesn't mention at all Pentecost. John is very aware of what's going to happen, if you read the book of Acts, chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit comes on them in a unique and powerful way. And we live there now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have this spirit in you. I wish I could turn it off sometimes, just like, so oh, dude, that's what it's like to not have it. But you live in it with the Spirit of God in you in a unique and powerful way that before that time, before Acts chapter 1, verse 8, didn't happen. No, excuse me, it doesn't happen. It's promised in 1. It happens in uh, uh, 2? Chapter 2, right? Yeah, and, and chapter 2, sorry. So he's saying, Here, here's what, oh, you need to do that. Then he says, here's your message. Here's your message. It's all about sins. It's all about sins. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the message of reconciliation. Same thing that I had, same thing that I have, I'm giving to you. The message of reconciliation. The most important thing about the cross. And it's a lot of things. It is. It's where you get your source of life it's where you get power for living. It's where you get, it's all those things. The most important things is you can know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. That is the fact and the only fact that I thought of when I became a follower of Jesus. Somebody told me that I could know that when I stand before a holy God, I could know, not wonder, guess, hope, but know that my sins are forgiven. He quoted 1 John 5, 11, 12, 13. Which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. When I heard the word know, I said, I want to know. How do you know? It took me about 12 hours to process that and wrestle with letting my life go to Christ. It was about sin. And I could have that forgiven. If you're here this morning and you don't know that, you can know that. Let Jesus Christ, let the crucified and risen Christ be your sin sacrifice. Let him take it. Jesus, you offered, I'm letting you take it. I will give you my life. I turn it over to you. It's a fancy word. Court talk about it. It's repent. It's turning over to him. And you say, I will follow you. You're my, you're my all. You're my savior. You're my Lord. That's simple. It's simple and it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your entire life. It's all about sin. It's all about 
having your sins forgiven, a clear, a clear conscience before God. That's the power comes from the Holy Spirit and the message, the primary thing that you're to speak of. There's all kinds of other things too, but that's the first thing. Let me close by asking you a simple question. Are you ready to start a revolution? Do you really believe this? Do you really believe John 2021? 20, As we've been, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do Gospel of John, one of the reasons I, after things I got very excited about as we went through it, was John 2021. 20, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Hope Community Church. As Jesus Christ was sent into the world, for God so loved the world that he sent Hope Community Church to tell people, to remind people, to model before people, to love on people, to be all around people, to weep with them when they weep, to do everything to point them to Jesus so that those who believe would not perish but have eternal life. That's you. That's me. That's a revolution. There was 10, and the book of Acts in chapter 17 talks about these people turned the world upside down, the King James Version said. What about with 300 or 500 like we have in the school year? What, let alone all the other people? We could, turn, we could turn city Minneapolis upside down. Is that too much of a dream? Is it too much of a dream to say Minneapolis could be changed for the kingdom because we took this seriously and said, Jesus Christ, you are the risen Christ. It's not just a concept here. It's reality. You're the one who appeared in a locked room and said, just as I sent as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I just confess two immediate emotions in my own heart. Incredible excitement. Incredible honor and excitement about being your hands and feet. Man, that thrills me. That thrills me and it honors me to think that you will use even me, even us. So God, we ask that you would do that. You would, you would do that in our lives, that you would use us, use our skills, use our abilities, use even our weaknesses, use our tears, use our lives, whatever it takes. Use us as you would use a tool, a hammer, to cause your kingdom to, to manifest itself in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and St. Paul, and the Burbs, and Minnesota, and all throughout do that, God. Not for us, because we don't want to be made much of. We want to make you much of. God, there's also something else right alongside, almost an equal force, and that is terror. It's frightening to me to think that I'm, I'm the last measure, I'm the last guy standing, and that if the forces get through me, then it's over and so Lord God we are the last standing we're, we're, there is no plan B we are your kingdom we are the ones who are the spreaders of your kingdom this week Father would you do some things in our body would you show us ways where we can visibly manifest the invisible kingdom in our relationships would you visibly show us clearly Holy Spirit speak to us you said receive the Holy Spirit we ask that you'd come Holy Spirit and that you'd Reveal to us exactly those situations in our families, exactly those situations in our workplaces, in our schooling, in our relationships, on Facebook, wherever it is, that we should be 
your ambassadors in any way, shape, or form. This is going to take a million different ways. And then, God, would you give us the guts to step out? Because, Lord, I think everyone in this room, just like the disciples, are scared to death. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us the power to be your representative, to be your sent ones into a lost and hurting world. Pray in Christ's name.